We return again to our study of the Word of God. And we're walking our way, as we know, through the Gospel of Mark. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And Gav made mention of last week's sermon and how uh, it's, Jesus spoke of the storm and that we drew from that, the storms of life. And it's been wonderful for me personally, and I know for many of you, as we've walked through this gospel and each portion of scripture as the narrative has pertinent applications for our life. And what's so wonderful is that when I go to a passage of scripture to study it, I don't need to conjure up or create any of it. When we go through the the passage we did last week, it's pertinent to storms of life. I merely just need to present the meal that God's already created. And so as we go through, we do that. And it's the same now again this Sunday. Just need to deliver the text. And so we did see last week Jesus sending the 12 disciples into the storm. That Jesus was intimately acquainted with every detail of that storm. Jesus delivered them from that storm. And that he delivers us, the people of God, from the storms of life. It's a joy to draw so many applications from the gospel narrative, the life of Jesus. There's much to be thankful for and there's a person to adore. The Lord Jesus Christ. And I love seeing your faces light up when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is most precious and most marvelous and most wonderful. And so we continue now and we hit chapter 7. And so if you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. And I'll read verses 1 through to 13 this morning for they'll be our focus. And so follow along with me in your Bibles as I read Mark chapter 7 verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, that's Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. And Mark now gives, in verses 3 and 4, in parentheses, in brackets there, something that tells us that this Gospel wasn't written to a Jewish audience, but to a Gentile audience, because it needs some explanation here. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders, underline that. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to, underline, the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. 
neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit of God that illuminates the truth of the word of God, that indwells us and that sanctifies us and that convicts us and that causes us to worship you. And Lord, we pray, Father, that you would bless us now as we are in this precious scripture, that you would do a mighty work here today. a saving, a sanctifying work of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, true and false religion. This is a collide with truth and tradition. The title of the message this morning is Truth Trumps Tradition. Tradition is where man-made rules and regulations determine and dictate all of life. And tradition collides with divine mandates and truth. This really is set before us, truth versus tradition. It's a battle, it's a wrestle, it's a fight, if you will. And in our passage this morning, we will see three scenes to this battle, truth versus tradition. There's much to get through. And so I want you to see first, the first scene, in verses 1 through 5, if you're taking notes, it's a religious confrontation. Look again at verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Him, that's Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem... These elite Jewish leaders, two groups of them, the epitome of what it means to be ruled by the traditions of men. For they are the fabricators and the authors of the traditions of men, the rituals of men. And they come, and it is here that we see the clash of two religions. One of truth, the other of tradition. Jesus being the truth and the Pharisees and the scribes being the tradition. Think about the scribes for a moment. As we've traveled along the narrative in Mark, we haven't seen the Pharisees and the scribes since about chapter 3, but they appear now back on the scenes. And I want you to think about the scribes for a moment. After the Babylonian captivity, which is when the Jews were captive in Babylon, 
The temple had been destroyed and the people were in slavery. The only thing Israel really had left was the scripture. The Tanakh. The Old Testament. And so from among that context, due to there being no printing press or printers at the time, a group rose up. A group known as the scribes. And they were called scribes because they hand copied the scripture. They wrote out the scripture. And they devoted an incredible amount of time to it. And because they devoted so much time to handwriting the text, they obviously became very acquainted with the text. They then began interpreting the text. And so then before you knew it, you had this group that had risen up because all that Israel had because of the captivity and they just had the, the Bible, the scripture left, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, they, they, they just began copying it. They began then interpreting it. Rabbis were then born who would have then, of course, teach the scripture. And ever since all that took place and ever since all that began, you had then one rabbi so-and-so interpreting what, what the other rabbi so-and-so said, all while these copies of scripture are being produced and obviously by God's sovereign hand, no doubt preserved. You had interpretation upon interpretation and commandment of God being twisted by men. And then you end up with what is mentioned in our passage and prior already in Mark, we've seen it. And I mentioned it, the tradition of the elders. Does this mic keep turning on and off or it's all good? It's all good? The tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders is a mass of writings that uh, make up the Talmud, And the Talmud is a bunch of oral traditions binding upon man, like God had written them, but he hadn't. Heading to LA soon, and you can buy Talmuds in 7-Eleven. You can buy them all over the place. Tradition of the elders. And so here you have this sect group, the scribes, the Pharisees, who were the teachers of Israel who knew the Word of God, who was zealous for the Word of God, but their interpretation of the Word of God had been corrupted and twisted by tradition. That's what we're going to see this morning. And so they come to Jesus here in verse 1. They gather around Jesus. They've come from Jerusalem. They're the most prime and select and elite bunch of Jewish hypocritical leaders. And they come from Jerusalem. And it's here we see a religious conflict, a contrast of truth and hypocrisy, a confrontation somewhat nasty where these men who are burdened by man's traditions, who burden men with tradition, gather around like a pack of wolves around Jesus Christ, who is truth himself incarnate. And with hearts full of opposition to Jesus, they have an ever watchful eye upon Jesus. And those that follow Jesus. Because we see there in verse 2, look, it says, And they had seen with their eyes that some of Jesus' disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. Before we get to the heart of what is happening here in these opening verses, I see something 
quite striking for us here. Just a quick takeaway. Those in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore those in opposition to us and our worldview always wait with an opportunistic attitude. They always watch, ready to strike at any moment. The observation of the eating with impure hands is an example of exactly that. It was an attack. It was an attack that exposed their heart of opposition and their heart of opportunistic attitude. The scribes and the Pharisees were a man-made religion built upon tradition. They were antagonistic toward Jesus Christ and His disciples. And for us, those who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ will always be on the watch to discredit us and to malign us. And as I said, the scribes and the Pharisees see with hostility and they inquire with hostility because of the opposition that is in their heart toward Jesus. And they see the twelve eating with impure, unwashed hands. I want you to notice right off the bat here that Jesus doesn't even go there. Jesus doesn't even give a refutation of their accusation that comes by way of a question regarding the eating of bread with impure hands. Jesus doesn't even go there. Jesus instead goes for the heart. And we'll see that in a moment. But what this does do is illustrate just how obsessed these Jewish leaders were on the external. You see, as we track along in this account, we're going to see just how deadly a subtle twisting of Scripture is and how damaging tradition is. Now, an example of just how dangerous this is, let me show you. Those considered the religious leaders of the day gather around Jesus. They marvel that Jesus' disciples are eating without performing an elaborate washing. Now, this washing of hands isn't talking about a hygienic kind of washing whereby we, like we do with soap. This is talking about a full ceremonial cleansing. Why the marveling? Why the wonder by these Religious leaders, well, in Leviticus 22, verses 6 and 7, which is the Mosaic law, is a command given to Israel. Let me read it to you. Leviticus 22, verses 6 and 7. A person who touches any such shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat of the holy gifts unless he hath bathed his body in water. But when the sun sets, he will be clean, and afterward he shall eat of the holy gifts, for it is his food. So, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Jewish leaders would insist, which sounds very clear, right? Wash before you eat. Ceremonially wash before you eat. They would insist that everyone must do so before they ate. Hence why they stood in marvel about the twelve eating bread. So you say, what's the problem? It's there. Well, the problem is that the command in Leviticus 22 verses 6 and 7 is for priests. It's for priests. It's not for everyday people. It's not for the common folk of Israel. It's for priests. 
And so what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing here was not taking a biblical command and applying it, but they were taking a twisted interpretation and a twisted tradition from a twisted interpretation built on by passed down oral traditions and basically condemning anyone who didn't ceremonially wash before they ate. Even though people aren't commanded by God to do so. Such is the burden of tradition. Such as this. I'm sure the disciples wiped away dirt and grime and etc. before they ate. But as for a ceremonial wash, which had now, as a result, become the tradition of Israel... And if you didn't follow the tradition, you were unclean, you were ungodly, you were uncouth. And this didn't just come from a small band of brothers over there. This came from the religious elite of the day. One commentator commentator summed it up well when he said this, quote, They, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, were hardly obsessed with sanitation, but obsessed with ritual tradition. End quote. That is why in verse 5, look there. That's why they're dumbfounded and accusatory. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with their bread with impure hands? I can tell you this is not coming from a teachable heart. The tone in which they say this is not this. Jesus, why is it that your disciples... Don't walk according to the tradition of the elders. Would you be able to please help me to understand why it is that they don't? No, no, no. This is coming with hostile. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? It's condemning. They were dumbfounded and accusatory. They are indicting Jesus here as a result of the conduct of his disciples. In their twisted tradition, in the eyes of these religious leaders, the disciples were being defiant and disobedient. And you see there repeatedly, they make an appeal to the tradition of the elders. Oral traditions that fill a book as though God wrote it, as I said, but man did. Oral traditions, the tradition of the elders had become binding as a burden upon the men and women. And look there at the middle of verse 4. And there are many other things which they received in order to observe. This is just one example. There's a whole host of things that they were doing which were a burden of tradition. And just as this eating with impure hands can be struck down with biblical truth, as we saw... They hold to many other things just like that that can be struck down with biblical truth. Tradition had overtaken and was trumping truth. You see, they swam in. They proselytized things that are not anchored in the truth that liberates a person. They peddled traditions that 
burden and falsely accuse a person. Here they are displaying utter hypocrisy. The sin of man, even in sincerity, is on display here. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were full of zeal for the Word of God. I mean, we live in an age where there's no zeal for the Word of God. And if the Pharisees Pharisees were around today, we might say, oh, they love the Word of God. They were full of zeal for the Word of God. They wanted to protect the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. But what they did was, was they built a wall of tradition around it so as to protect it and not the truth of it. Man-made religion and regulations and traditions causes issues and conflicts. I think for a moment, all that Israel had received, the promises, the blessings, the word of God, the law, the privileges, they had received that from Yahweh. And yet they blew it. For now, because we know that God promises to restore Israel and to save Israel. But they blew it. They blew it by making man-made externals. Instead of binding Scripture inside their mind, they, to this day, externally bind it upon their forehead. Right? When we read Jesus, as we've seen Just recently in the Gospel of Mark, when we see Jesus looking out upon the people and having compassion upon them, why was He having compassion upon them? Because we saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. You can understand why on a greater level now. You can understand why Jesus called them blind guides. They weren't experts in living from the heart They were experts at living from the head, a head full of traditions. They were given, as the people of Israel, so many privileges. And yet, as J.C. Ryle said, quote, never did fine gold become so dim. They were the religion of Deuteronomy and the beauty of the Psalms. And they became a religion of the washing of hands. And how great was the fall, end quote. And so this all begins with a religious confrontation. The Jewish leaders gather around Jesus and may this all be a warning to me and to you. Never play around with falsehood. Always be a Berean. Always be on guard. If it's not in the word of God, it has no authority. When we allow something to creep in that isn't anchored in the truth, but is anchored in tradition, and then that tradition is then peddled around like it's truth, legalism and hypocrisy then take root. And so may we be on guard, whatever that may be. As a church, we have traditions. Our church service time is a tradition. Our structure of Music and our choice of music is a tradition. Those things you all hold to loosely. 
They aren't commandments from God. So that's the first scene. Where tradition gathers around truth. Where the scribes and the Pharisees gather around Jesus so as to attempt to discredit. Next, I want you to see the second scene in verses 6 and 9. A righteous condemnation. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, some very condemning words. Here we see Jesus going for the jugular. Jesus isn't interested in the external. Jesus isn't interested in sugarcoating. Jesus is striking right at the heart. And it's here, you see, as I said earlier, Jesus doesn't even mention anything about the eating of bread or any such thing. Instead, Jesus lifts up the hood and deals directly with the engine, that is, what was driving them, pun intended. He wants to deal exactly what was driving them in their hostility. Now, since Jesus has arrived on the scene, ushered in by his cousin, heralded in by John the Baptist, the Jewish religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, had been at him. Had they not? We've seen that all the way through the the Gospel of Mark already. They were attacking him. And they just keep ramping it up. Until we saw both the entire nation, both politically and religiously, began, we saw, to conspire Jesus' death. They told him and everyone that Jesus was possessed by Satan They would constantly come in waves from Jerusalem, the elite of the day. They would come and attack and undermine Jesus, fearful of his influence that he was having over the people. And here in verses 6 through 9, we see that it is right here for the first time that Jesus decides that the time had now come for him to deal drastically and directly with the core issue. What lay at the very epicenter of the conflict between Jesus and the religious elite? You remember prior, Jesus had just been asking questions. He had them in knots. He'd given them parables. He'd warned them. But now, the time is to cut deep with condemnation. And now in verse 6, as I said, for the very first time, first time, we see Jesus do that. But before we read it, let me point something out. Obvious, but let me point it out. Jesus is about to use the very thing, that is the scripture, that they accept as authoritative. Jesus is going to use that to condemn them. Jesus doesn't quote from the tradition of the elders. He quotes the truth of Scripture. And I want you to notice there, before he quotes the truth of Scripture, Jesus gives his own comments on the matter. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Whoa. Rightly did. A phrase that gives us the idea that the words Isaiah used to condemn the Israelites fit so perfectly 
is what rightly did is conveying. Fits so perfectly with you, the scribes and the Pharisees, he said. I want you to know that this is the first time that Jesus called them hypocrites. He would repeat this, would he not, over and over and over again. But here's the first time. Jesus would always deal so graciously with the people. He deals so graciously with the common folk. But for the Jewish religious leaders who peddled tradition like it was truth and who burdened people not with divine command but man-made rules and regulation, Jesus spoke strong and Jesus spoke harsh. This is a Jesus you can't ignore. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You keep the outside all clean, but the inside of the cup is all dirty. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You are like whitewashed tombs, all sparkly on the outside, but you are full of dead men's bones. Dead man's bones. Hypocrites. The word hypocrites, an actor. Specifically, an actor wearing a mask is what the word means. An actor wearing a mask is pretending, pretending to be something that is not. The Pharisees, these peddlers of tradition, they profess to follow God. They profess to follow His truth. But in reality, they followed man and man's tradition. The washings of the hand and the body before bread had consumed them. And there were, as we saw, many other examples just like that. As Mark mentioned, it had snuffed out worship from a sincere heart. An obsession with the external to a neglect of the internal. They were hypocrites in the fullest sense. Because they parroted with their mouth that God is all to them. But their heart was far away. Because while they, their lips uttered words about being close to God, the reality was that their very heart was far away. Look at verses 6 and 7. The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. These words expose for us and reveal to us this great distance and this great chasm that exists between them and God. And the great contrast there is between the outward and the inward, the external and the internal. The Pharisees were obviously more, more concerned with how things looked on the outside than how things were on the inside. Their traditions, they peddled around like truth. And because they peddled them around like truth, it only galvanized and cemented them in their hypocrisy. They said they were close to God, but in reality they were far from God. And there really is an abundance of implications for us here today. A huge amount. God doesn't want us to worship Him in vain. But we do worship Him in vain when we bring our lips in and proclaim 
with our lips, but we leave our hearts at home, as J.C. Ryle said. When we gather together to praise and to pray and to preach, and our mouths are moving, but our hearts are locked away in some distant land, It's not good. The Pharisees worshipped in vain. They were superficial. We couldn't even say of the Pharisees that their hearts had even grown cold. We can't even say that of them. Because it had never been warmed by the love of God. Instead, it was held captive by an obsession with outward rituals and traditions. As believers, we've had our hearts set on fire by the love of God. A cold, dead heart regenerated by the Spirit of God, set on fire for the love of God. Yet we too, due to our sinful flesh, we're prone sometimes to leave our hearts at home. And then when we're at home, we, our hearts are in a distant land. An implication for us is that we need to see the preciousness of Jesus. All that He is, His character, His power, His love, His kindness, His care, His atoning sacrifice for us. And they must move us to worship and adore Him from the heart, that He is more precious than anything. Jesus condemned the Jewish religious leaders because they worshipped God in vain. That whole idea, what does it mean? Well, it means that they most certainly performed acts of worship. They prayed, they praised, they preached. And yet those acts of piety... And worship had zero substance. They were void. And as you hear these voices, verses, and my voice, as you hear these words this morning, has God put a spotlight on you? Is that you this morning? As the word of God echoes in your heart and mind. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me. As you sit here, have you come to the realization that you are different to the believer here this morning who is worshiping with the heart? Have you come to the realization perhaps as you hear these words that you are even different to the believer who through neglect of spiritual matters has grown cold of heart. Has God put a spotlight on you? Is God showing you that you are different to both of those? The believer who is worshipping and the believer who has grown cold out of neglect of spiritual matters. Do you find an acquaintance with the Pharisees this morning as you sit here? 
that it's all external for you and that it's all been external for too long. And that you've lived a life of vain, superficial worship where you've performed acts of worship, where you've spoken words from the lips, but you know, perhaps even today for the first time that your heart is far away from God. And the reason it's far away is because God has never had your heart. I don't know, maybe that's you. That you have a form of godliness, but no power of godliness because you have not submitted your life to an all-powerful God. That the Spirit of God has never changed your heart. Is that you this morning? Because please know that when you don't possess truth, you possess tradition. And when you don't have truth, the grips of hypocrisy possess you. And sure, the church is filled with hypocrites because we all sin and we all fail. And if you stand mocking Christianity because you say it's all full of hypocrites, well, join the club because you're one too. Only the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, can free you from vain, superficial worship and can free you from a heart that is far from God. Because Jesus came for the very reason to close the gap between a holy God and a sinful man. Jesus wants people to draw near to Him. And when people draw near to Him, He changes their very heart. So that those people will now love Him. And because though we love Him, we want to worship Him in spirit and in truth, not in spirit and tradition. Listen, you don't want the condemnation that Jesus is delivering here to the Pharisees to be delivered to you. But if you are here this morning and you are far away from God because God has never had your heart, this is your condemnation. But understand this. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is awesome. He is worthy. He is everything. And He says, come to Him this day and find rest for your wearied, hypocritical, burdened soul. Acting the part is just tiring, is it not? The play's over. Acting is tiring, but following Jesus is inspiring. In Him you'll find the greatest of joys. In the Lord Jesus Christ you'll find the deepest of love. In Him you will find the truth. And the truth will set you free. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is no longer any condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, in Mark 7 here, Jesus rains down more condemnation. And the reason He rains down more condemnation is because condemnation is fitting for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And in verse 8, he says, you neglect the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. That's the reason for their vain and superficial worship. That's the reason that their heart is far from God. 
They neglect the commandment of God. Singular. They neglect the scripture. But hold fast. They cling to the tradition of men. Verse 9. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Tradition, tradition. The attack is upon tradition. When you neglect the commandment of God, that is the truth revealed in the word of God. And when you do that long enough, verse 9, you become experts at setting aside the commandment of God. The Pharisees and the scribes have become clever, skilled, excellent at pushing aside the truth and peddling tradition. I want you to notice in verse 7 that they were teaching as doctrine tradition. And when you do that long enough, like they were, you become an expert at it. This really gives a window into traditions. Traditions are very, very appealing to the flesh. False religions like Roman Catholicism, they are encompassed with these kind of things. They bring comfort and they bring ease and they bring familiarity and they bring a high view of self. They bring about self-righteousness. They bring about a form of pride that looks down on others. We do it right and they do it wrong. We look at disdain with those who do it wrong. And yet the irony here and for every false religion and for the scribes and Pharisees here is what you peddle as truth is actually man-made religion. You see... When the scribes and the Pharisees came and gathered around Jesus in verse 1 and then began to condemn the disciples for eating bread, as I said, they weren't coming all nice and mild. They were coming filled with hostility and hatred. They aren't passive. They're active. And the reason they are active is because they are experts at setting aside the Scripture and peddling a burden of tradition. And Jesus here, with a righteous condemnation, just tips over their apple cart, just destroys it. He condemns them with a righteous condemnation. The battle of truth versus tradition. Three scenes. We've seen first the religious confrontation. Second, the righteous condemnation. And now third, and very quickly, the final scene in this battle between truth and tradition in verses 10 through 13. A required correction. Jesus says there in verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your mother and father. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Verse 11, but by way of immense contrast. But you say... If a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Hereafter being interrogated by the scribes and the Pharisees, after then condemning the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus now illustrates exactly what they do. Moses gave the commandment 
a divine commandment, truth from God, about how a person, no matter the age, how they must treat their parents. And Moses sandwiches together two ideas, a positive assertion and then a negative. First, from Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land in which the Lord, the God, gives you. That's quite positive. Then Leviticus 20, verse 19, anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. That's quite negative. These commands from God delivered by Moses include the need to care for your parents in any way possible, particularly financially. We see this echoed in the New Testament, do we not? As New Covenant believers for us, 1 Timothy 5.14, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God, 1 Timothy 5.4. But here in Old Testament times, any person who was found to dishonor their parents was to be put to death. That was the biblical divine commandment from God. But you say, the contrast that Jesus is showing them there, but you say, Jesus is saying, God says this, but you mere men say this. The truth instructs in this way, but your tradition burdens people that way. Let me explain the whole concept of Corban. Some of you are probably thinking, what exactly is going on here? Well, Corban is a transliteration, that is a conversion of the Hebrew word for a gift devoted to God. Corban means a gift devoted to God. In these days, people would give gifts to the temple and they could only be used for purposes as it pertains to the temple and the ministry that went out from the temple. And what became tradition as the Jewish religious leaders peddled their twisted views, what became tradition was that if you were approached by your ailing and aging parents, if mum and dad were in need of help, instead of fulfilling the God-given mandates given to you by Moses, by God, which ranked in the truth, which called for sons and daughters to help their parents, these scripture-twisting, tradition-toting, burden-laying legalists would say this. And they'd say it with such piety that it's really pathetic. Something like this. Well, mom and dad, I am a holy man. I am zealous for God. I am devoted to God. And all that I have is devoted to God. I really wish I could help you, but everything I have is Corban. Everything that I have has already been given to God. And so this tradition became truth. And families and parents who needed help were left without. 
all while money kept flowing in to the temple. Parents suffered. They got wealthy. This is an illustration that there are ramifications for when tradition trumps truth. Verses 12 and 13. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Why? Because it had become tradition. And so the religious leaders peddled the tradition. Then the sons and daughters obeyed that tradition. And Jesus is indicting them and saying, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother because he's bound up in that tradition that you bound him up in. Then verse 13. And thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down. And look at the end of it. And you do many such things as that. This tradition became common practice. Sons then followed suit. You see, Jesus is trying to show here that to them was given the fifth commandment. To them, the nation of Israel. Honor your father and mother. It includes financially helping them. But the tradition stifled that. They kept the scribes and the Pharisees and the temple cashed up, and it, but it invalidated the word of God. Now, I've always been taught that every good sermon needs to have a front porch, a front door, a hallway, a lounge room, and a kitchen. And you've got to get to the kitchen. And in the kitchen is often where the family eats. So we're going to get to the kitchen. We're a church family and we have traditions. And I want to put my finger on just one. The Lord's table. It is so wonderful to observe the Lord's table. It is so wonderful because it is commanded by God that we observe the Lord's table. It is one of two ordinances given to the church by the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a privilege upon all privileges to partake in the Lord's table. But we're in the kitchen now, so let me tell you something. There are zero plans on any agenda, any place, to move from having communion every Sunday. But I want to be in the kitchen. Let's imagine hypothetically there was. And we went to once a month. And we didn't have it every week. Because I know that from our heritage, some people believe that Jesus says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that you have to have it every week. For as often as you drink it. If you hold fast so that the Lord's table must be every Sunday, I want you to know that that is a tradition that is not anchored in truth. And I have to say that, my church family. It's one example. We have traditions that are excellent. Now as we close, and I've kept you long enough, how can we prevent tradition 
from displacing and supplanting the truth in our life and in the life of this church. I drew these from my friend, Dr. Lawson, our friend, Dr. Lawson. Number one, read the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. Believe in the Word of God. Believe that it's all we need, that it is sufficient. Number two, avoid all hypocritical living. Live with sincerity. Ask the Lord to, to, to bring your heart with you wherever you go. Live from the heart. We've got to guard our hearts, right? From them flow the issues of life. And number three, drawn right from the text, love and honor your parents. Obey them. It's for children, but it's not just for children because it's talking about providing for them. And lastly there, consider afresh the necessity of being born again. We must live with hearts that are on fire for God and that only happens when we're born again, born from above by the Spirit of God. I've kept you long enough. We've seen a religious confrontation, a righteous condemnation and a required correction. May we be followers of Jesus and not followers of tradition. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how wonderful it is and how gracious and truly awesome you are. Thank you for this church family. Lord, may we love one another from the heart. May we worship you from our heart. And then if anyone here found acquaintance with the Pharisees because their heart is far from you, Lord, would you do a saving work as we began and we prayed at the start? And for each of us here, Lord, who are born again from the Spirit of God, would you do a sanctifying work? Would you help us to adore truth and hold our tradition loosely? And those the traditions that are a burden and an abomination to you, would we cast them away? In Jesus' precious name we pray all these things. Amen.